Hi, this is Jim Lobato, and I'm president and founder of a company called Performance Group. You're listening to the podcast version of a program that originally aired on the BizTalk radio show. I started BizTalk so you'd have access to today's leading experts about growing your company and yourself. BizTalk is produced by Performance Group. At Performance Group, we work at the front end of a company's revenue stream. We find the salespeople who generate the revenue, and we provide onboarding programs that get them doing that sooner. Our passion is aligning talent with opportunity. That's why we're known as a Salesforce development company. Enjoy the program. On our program tonight is Matt Dixon. He's a co-author of the book, The Challenger Sale, which has sales leaders all over the country rethinking how they're going to deploy their sales force. We'll get to Matt right away, but not without taking a moment to stop to remember the person who was on before BizTalk prior to tonight, and that was Jim Zobel. A lot has already been written and said about Jim, and I won't repeat that, but we examine what the man did and the fact he had a passion for what he did, and he was able to do that up until the last moment. You know, he was preparing for a show tonight when he passed away. At 91, he had a passion for what he did, and we all should be that fortunate, meaning we should all find that opportunity in our life that aligns with our passion so when we come to work, it's not really work. And I think that's the lesson that Jim Zabo left for us. And if we can learn from that, we'll all be better off. So that's the legacy that I think Jim Zabo brings and one that we can definitely learn from. So, Jim, you will be sorely missed. On our program today, we welcome Matt Dixon, an executive director with CEB. The CEB is a leading member-based advisory company that equips senior leaders and their teams with insight and actual solutions to transform operations. The CEB member network includes more than 16,000 executives and the majority of the top companies globally. In his role, Matt has overseen dozens of original research studies on issues ranging from customer service strategy to sales productivity. Today, we're talking to Matt about his book he co-authored with Brent Adamson, The Challenger Sale, Taking Control of the Customer Conversation. The book is a result of a study of thousands of sales reps across multiple industries and argues that the classic relationship building model is losing its approach. Matt is a frequent contributor on sales and customer service topics on the Harvard Business Review's blog. Matt, welcome to the program. Jim, thanks for having me on today. Well, Matt, I'm excited to have you on because we had Tom Searcy on our program the other day. He made a comment that the sale is about the relationship but it isn't only about the relationship. Mm -hmm. And in your book, you're kind of challenging some of the the common beliefs out there, at least when I talk to sales executives, when I ask them, you know, what's unique about what you do? And they say, oh, it's just our relationship with our customers. Like, I hear that from everybody. Mm -hmm. So what is it about customer relationships or this whole process of selling that in your research you found to be uniquely different or changing at this time? Yeah, it's a a great question, Jim. And I think Tom is... Uh, spot on that, you know, what we found, and as we talk here about uh, the research that went into the Challenger sale and the story and, and how we see sales evolving, I think where we end up is exactly what uh, the place that Tom uh, articulated, which is that it's it's not to suggest that relationships no longer matter uh, in today's business-to-business sale, but rather the currency of that relationship has changed quite a bit uh, over the years. And, and the big thing we see happening, actually, uh, Jim, 
is it's not so much the change that we're seeing happening in the way that people are selling uh, these days. It's more the change we see in the ways that customers are buying that's been the biggest change to hit sales and, and arguably B2B sales and marketing over the past uh, five to ten years. What I mean by that specifically is if you think back, you know, if we went back maybe even 10, 15 years ago, it was a world in which customers primarily learned from salespeople. So if you think about a customer, a big customer has a need, business need, and they think about the suppliers who might be able to solve that need. Uh, and the way to learn about how the suppliers can help them is to call up their, their salespeople and schedule some time to sit down with them and have that salesperson kind of walk you through their brochure or walk you through your their PowerPoint deck, teach you all about their products and solutions and the value it can bring uh, back to that customer organization. And it was really a one-way sort of flow of information. And the only way you could get that information was actually by talking to a salesperson. The trouble today, as, as time's gone on, and in today's buying environment, the trouble is that customers don't really need salespeople to play that role anymore. Today, we know that customers are actually learning a lot about their issues, about ways to solve different business problems, what problems are out there to be solved even. Uh, they're learning these things on their own. In fact, just a quick data point here, we find that by the time the average customer engages with a salesperson, their purchase decision today is almost 60% over. So they've already decided, you know, hey, here's the business problem I need to solve. Uh, here are the suppliers out there who might be able to solve that problem for me. They've even started to benchmark those suppliers' capabilities and, and even their pricing. And how do they do it? Well, they go to our website and they download all that information. They pick up the phone and call a third-party purchasing consultant. They go to a LinkedIn group and, and tap into peer advice about different vendors and what's the going rate for X, Y, or Z kind of solution. And so by the time they sit down with the salesperson, really all that's left is to negotiate around price and terms and conditions. You know, it's, it's, it's an interesting place and a troubling place really for salespeople today. It's not unlike how you and I buy cars. If you think about 20, 30 years ago when we bought our first cars, we'd go to the dealership and we were really reliant on the salesperson at the dealership to tell us about what kinds of cars were available that year, what are the makes and models and the features and the benefits, and, and the pricing was very opaque. As you remember, the negotiation between yourself, the salesperson, and the salesperson's manager in the back room, and you drove off the lot not really knowing if you got a great deal. Now, these days, we walk in armed to the teeth with data. We've gone to the web. We've, we know exactly what car we want. We know what make, what model, what options, what color. We know not only that, but we even have a really good idea of how much that dealer paid for that vehicle, and we know how much others in our zip code may have paid for that vehicle, uh, the drive-off-the-lot price. And so we have a really good sort of piece of negotiating leverage in our hand while we sit down with that salesperson. In fact, we don't even really think of them as a salesperson these days at all. We think of them as just fulfilling our order that we already have in our heads. And we actually get kind of annoyed if they try to sell us on anything different from what we had already walked in the door thinking we wanted. And it's not to suggest that we're there already in B2B purchasing, but the data suggests we're going there pretty fast, even around pretty complex things that we sell in the B2B space. And so it's this world in which customers can learn on their own that's really up the ante. So now in these in this time, in this day and age, it's not enough to be able to kind of show up and throw up, to be able to get, just give the product pitch, the features and benefits. Because again, the customer already knows all this stuff. Uh, it's also not enough to just be a, a good guy who the customer likes, to know them on a personal level, to be accessible and, uh, and agreeable and this kind of thing. Because in today's world, where the customer's armed to the teeth with data, they're looking for something different. And what they're looking for, we found in our research, is new insights. They're looking for new ideas. They're looking for the idea they couldn't find on the internet, the idea that, uh, that they hadn't thought about before. They're looking for salespeople to show up and add value. It doesn't mean that the relationship doesn't matter, to Tom's point. It means that the currency of the relationship has really changed from just being likable, being a good person, 
purveyor of information to actually being a teacher, somebody who delivers new and unique and valuable insight, insight that the customer actually wants to pay for. Thanks for listening in on the conversation. This is BizTalk. Resources on growing yourself and your company are available on our website, biztalkradioshow.com. We're talking with Matt Dixon, the co-author of the book, The Challenger Sale, Taking Control of the Customer Conversation. The book, it has many people rethinking how they're deploying their sales force today. You bring up an interesting point, and let's go with your car buying analogy. Mm-hmm. So... And I'm old enough to remember what you're talking about and going through that car buying experience. And there are maybe some people in our audience today that are younger, and all they experience is having that knowledge and going into that dealership. Mm-hmm. And you, the dealership, some dealership solutions to this was, you know, the one price car where there's no negotiation. Right. And they didn't hire salespeople anymore. They hire, you know, basically greeters who then turn you over to some type of sales manager or finance person because their job was to greet you and just show you because you already knew a lot about the vehicles. Yep. yep. Right. So we can all relate to that, I think, today. But what about our decision makers, the ones who are in, let's say, a VP of sales or, let's say, a sales executive or even the CEO who remembers carrying that briefcase, who remembers going to that class for two weeks and getting all the product knowledge. And when they come into the marketplace today, it's like, well, we got to have the product knowledge. We have to do this, and and we have to approach it the way we've done in the past. So is there this gap between what's going on in in the buyer's world and how the leaders of our sales forces are approaching this change? Yeah, it's a fantastic point, and it's actually, I agree completely with what you're saying. There actually is not just a gap, but I'd actually say a huge gap right now between the ways that customer, the the customer buying journey, the the customer's buying behavior, and how rapidly that's evolved in the past few years, and how slow companies have been to kind of keep pace with that. And so if you were to, you know, peel open, I think exactly your point, if you were to peel open the training manual for your average salesperson at most companies around the world, it still is really focused on a lot of the stuff around building, you know, the core, the core elements of building good professional relationships with your customers. Uh, even you, you probably see a big focus on things like asking good questions, you know, asking uh, open-ended questions, questions designed to get the customer to talk a lot about their business. You know, as we looked at our research, one of the things we found before is that this kind of sales approach in a world where customers either, we know our customers are running lean and mean already, right? So we, we know that they don't have as much time or as many people or as many resources as they used to. And so they're in a world where they've got to actually make decisions. They've got to make good decisions. They've got to make them quickly. And so in this world and in a world of abundant information out there, they've already got a really good idea of the, the problems they think that they have and that they want a supplier to help them or a vendor to help them solve. And the last thing they want to do is sit down and with a salesperson and answer these big, grand, kind of open-ended questions like, what's keeping you up at night? Uh, you know, What are your objectives this year? Uh, what's the CEO's strategy? And how does it tie to what you, you care about and what your department is focused on? You know, all these kinds of things that we've spent, you know, I'd say not, not millions, but even billions of dollars over the years teaching salespeople to ask. And what, what customers say is, look, 
in in today's world, I don't want a salesperson to show up and ask me what's keeping me up at night. I want them to show up and tell me what should be keeping me up at night. And what the salesperson doesn't fully appreciate is in a world where there's so much data out there, but so little valuable and truly, truly insightful information, the ability of a salesperson to actually sit down with a customer and say, here's the thing that, you know, you're, you're, I know you're trying to solve these problems and you're trying to solve them in this way. Here's the thing that you're missing. Here's the thing that only some of our most progressive customers are really focused on right now, but you need to be focused on. Here's the thing about your business that you actually didn't even know was true before, a new idea to make money or save money or avoid risk or engage your employees or steal market share from competitors uh, that you hadn't previously considered. And what customers will say is, look, that is so much more valuable to me than being asked what's keeping me up at night. For a salesperson to actually show up and teach me something new, that creates a sales experience where I would actually pay the salesperson for their time. You know, and in, in done really well, it's not just open-ended teaching, as we talk about in the book. It's the idea of teaching customers to value insights, value business opportunities and problems that lead back to the things that you can do uniquely better than anybody else. So what are the reasons that a customer should buy from you? And then how do we tell a story and how do we create a need in the customer's mind such that they want to pay for those things that make us unique, then you're, you know, that's a powerful moment for both the customer because it's new insight and the supplier because you're chalking the field. You're creating a, a situation in which you've gotten the customer to value these things that you can do and your competitors can't. And so you're, you're actually creating a defined need around your unique capabilities, which is a really, really powerful place to be. It's something we talk a lot about in the book. You're sitting there today listening to this broadcast or podcast, and you recognize that what you're saying is true because you're experiencing it in the marketplace. As a sales leader, what steps do you start taking today to close the gap you're talking about? I don't want to make light of, of how hard it is to actually make this change. And one of the things we talk about in the book is that, you know, Challenger, I think a lot of people read the book and they come away with the assumption that the Challenger story is a story simply of individual salesperson's skills. When we talk about this idea of five different kinds of sales sales folks out there, salespeople, and we talk about the idea that the Challenger performs heads and tails better than the rest, and that, that higher level performance is even more dramatic when you look at complex, if you will, solution sales kind of situations versus transactional or activity-based sales situations. When you look at this and you peel it apart and you say, boy, these challengers do things that are really different. And actually, it really helped, It really makes sense when you think of what customers are looking for today because the challenger, they, they deliver insight. They teach the customer something new. They tailor that message to the stakeholder or customer they're talking to, and they take control. They're assertive. They're not aggressive or obnoxious, but they're professionally and empathetically assertive. They hold their ground on key points in the sale. And you look at all this stuff, and you're, I think your knee-jerk reaction is say, well, let's get them in the classroom and let's train them up, right? So let's, get, let's teach them how to do this stuff. Let's get our sales managers to coach to these behaviors. And that's critically important. And I don't want to make light of that. It is such an important part of the journey is to get your salespeople to appreciate the importance of these challenger skills and competencies and to get your managers to coach to them. But what we say in the book is it's really only half the journey. The other half of it is you got to produce content to put in your salespeople's hands that actually creates that kind of insight-based conversation we were talking about before, a kind of conversation that leads back to the things that make you unique. And getting that right is actually not the job of necessarily only the VP of sales, nor is it the job of their sales trainer. It's actually the job in many cases of marketing, of the product leadership of the organization to actually figure out, hey, what is it that makes us really unique out there? What is the, what is the thing that if we, can lay, if we laid claim to it, none of our competitors could legitimately say that they do that 
that too. Now, most companies, when asked that question, will fall back on things like, well, you know, Jim, we're, we're really innovative. We're more innovative than our competitors, or we're more entrepreneurial, or we're more customer-centric. And if we're really honest with ourselves, those things are kind of platitudes in today's business world. And, and they're not things that, if we were to be fair to our competitors, that our competitors couldn't also claim to be good at. They aren't things, in other words, that really make us unique. But if we can really crystallize the thing that truly makes us distinct, the thing that is credible, it's unique, it's valuable, it's proven, and it is unique to our organization and our competitors can't replicate it, if we can define that as a leadership team and then put together a pitch deck for our salespeople that talks about customer opportunities and problems they didn't know they had that leads to those things, wow, that's a powerful place. And then when you take that and you put it in the hands of a challenger salesperson who can be assertive, who can push the customer's thinking a bit, who can tailor the message, and who has a posture not of um, showing up and throwing up, nor of just asking open-ended questions, but rather one of uh, delivering insight, kind of being a teacher to the customer, now you're cooking with grease because that's a very powerful combination. But for a sales leader, back to your question, when they think, how do I make this transition? Well, you know, part of it's on you, and part of it's about the right salespeople working in the right environment, hired the right way, trained the right way, and coached the right way. But part of it, you got to pull in your marketing partners because you got to create those stories. And those are the people in most organizations responsible for that. It doesn't mean sales leadership doesn't play a critical role, but it does mean that this challenger thing can't be done alone. You know, they're, you're trying to turn this battleship, but there are a number of hands on the wheel, if that makes sense. This is BizTalk. On our show is Matt Dixon. He's talking about his book, The Challenger Sale, the book that has turned the heads of many sales leaders because of how it has them rethinking how to deploy their sales force. We're going to continue our conversation with Matt as he talks about his research on how they uncovered the five types of salespeople that exist in the selling environment today. You bring up two things. Then I want to catch the audience upon. First of all, you drew reference to the five types of salespeople. Yeah, yeah, sure. And for our audience, it, when you read the book, well, what Matt and his research has identified, the five types are the hard worker, the challenger, the relationship builder, the lone wolf, and the reactive problem solver. And so you categorize salespeople into five areas. And yeah. what I think I heard you just say is that the the one role, one of the five, that stands out above the rest is the challenger salesperson. Yep. And so specifically, what is unique about the challenger versus the other four? Yeah, great question. Let me just explain a little bit of how we did the research just for, for a moment here and then a little bit about each of those profiles because I think that will help with the context or contextualize what it is that challengers do that's really different. So in in the work, we went out and ran a, um, a global site. We've now got data of about 20,000 salespeople around the world. It, the way we ran the survey was sales managers assessing all the people on their sales team across a variety of competencies. And what we tried to do, Jim, was stay away from the, the nature stuff out there. So, you know, we're not looking at personality types, but rather we're trying to assess these salespeople across about 50 different competencies and skills. So we try to focus more not on nature, but more on nurture. What are the things that can be taught to the average salesperson? So cover different you know, levels of knowledge, different competencies and skills, attitudes, things like that. Again, things we tend to focus on in sales training and in coaching. When we did this and we collected all this data, we did something called a factor analysis where we actually found that all the data basically fell into five different clusters, if you will, five different 
factors. We came to call these the five salesperson majors, and I can tell you every single salesperson in our database can statistically be placed in one of these five profiles. Now, it's not a hard and fast thing, so there's bleed between them, and if, and if there are salespeople on the line today or sales leaders, as I go through these different types, what you'd want to think about is, you know, who am I? What kind of sales approach do I take? And if you're a sales leader, you want to start putting names and faces against each of these five profiles. But here's the thing is that, they're, as I said before, they're not mutually exclusive. There's some bleed between them. Think of it more like a college major. You know, so we've got the core curriculum. As salespeople, we're all goal-oriented at some level, maybe some more than others. But that's not really a thing that describes one salesperson as different from the next. But the five, these five profiles do. They actually are the thing, the specialty areas, the, the things we specialize in as salespeople. It primarily characterizes how we engage with the customer, how we think of our job as a salesperson. So the five, as you said before, the hard worker. The hard worker is kind of the, your nose to the grindstone seller. They're, they get in early. They stay late. They bang out more calls or, more, or knock on more customer doors than anybody else on the team. And they're very open and eager for feedback. And, and for this reason, they're, they're actually kind of a pleasure to manage, as you can, as you can imagine. You've got the challenger. And the challenger is the debater on the team. They've got a unique point of view, sometimes a provocative point of view, and they're not afraid to use that point of view to push the customer outside their comfort zone, to push their thinking a little bit. Again, think, think about things and see things from a different angle. And, you know, in many organizations, these are people who have been sort of frowned upon internally because they are also challengers of their colleagues and of their bosses and, and of the status quo inside their own company. Well, I've been told by many companies, hey, I, you know, had I known challengers did so well, we wouldn't have fired them all those years ago. When, when we hired these guys and they came in and they, you know, they were always bending our ear about what our strategy should be and what's wrong with this product and what's wrong with our go-to-market system and, you know, these kinds of things. But they challenge our thinking internally and externally. And in some organizations, that can be a tough pill to swallow. You've got relationship builders. Relationship builders are the third profile. They, their primary posture is one of acquiescence. So they, they have strong personal and professional connections with the customer. They're very open and generous with their time. Very, But their posture is primarily one of reactive acquiescence. Whatever the customer wants, I try to take care of it. The customer needs, you know, some expedited shipping or some customization of the solution. I go back to my own company. I try to lobby. I pound the table for that customer because that's what the customer needs. The customer needs a discount or some pricing or terms and condition concession that we usually don't grant. Well, I go back to my manager and I try to make that happen. Or I, I go to the CFO's office and I try to get a special approval for this customer. I am their person inside of our organization. You've got the lone wolf. As you said before, the lone wolf is a, a lone wolf kind of the prima donna of the sales organization. They they don't follow the sales process. They build their own marketing materials. They don't file their expense reports on time. They We jokingly say they probably sell things that you don't even make, and then they ask for forgiveness later rather than permission up front. And, you know, in many organizations, we'll find lone wolves, sometimes up to 20 25% of the sales force, and a lot of high performers fall into the lone wolf category too, largely because if they weren't crushing their number, we would have fired them for ignoring the rules. And, and that's when you have the tough conversation with the lone wolf is when they don't deliver that rock star performance. If they do, we turn the other way. If they don't, we have a tough conversation. And then the last one is the reactive problem solver. And think about this person as sort of a customer service rep in salesperson clothing. Their posture is more about not a, not on getting the next deal signed, but on getting the last deal implemented correctly, right? So they make lots, they know salespeople make lots of promises during the course of the sale, and they want to make sure when the ink is dry in the contract that all those promises are kept. And so for that reason, you know, customers love these folks. Sales managers 
others, not so much, because they're not focused on getting the next deal through the pipeline. Now, the, what we find in the data is that when you look at high performers, challengers come out at almost 40% of all high-performing salespeople. This is the top 20% of the sales force across companies, across industries. Almost 40% of them are challengers. And at the, there are some in the other profiles, but at the other extreme is the relationship builder comes in dead last at only 7% of all high performers. Now, when you look at complex sales situations, solution sales situations, where most of our, our companies that we work with are moving toward, they're trying to get out of slinging product and into a world where they're selling bigger solutions, long-term deals that have not just products, but multiple products wrapped in layers of service, this kind of thing. It's going from selling the laptop to selling the laptop and all of the support and all of the service that goes around it over multiple years, all the break, fix, et cetera, that kind of thing. And when you look at complex sales, what you find is the challenger dominates at 54% of high performers, and the relationship builder falls off the grid almost entirely. Only 4% of high performers in a complex sales environment are relationship builders. And when you peel the part, what makes them different, what you find is a challenger does three things. They teach, they bring a unique insight to the table, they push the customer's thinking, they get them to see things from a different angle, they tailor, they take an idea and make it resonate to the individual sitting across the table because all those individuals are different. They're motivated by different things. They're in different kinds of corporate cultures. They work in different industries, etc. They have different MBOs, and challengers know that. So they don't take an insight like a sledgehammer and deliver it the same way. They take an insight and they tailor it for the person sitting across the table, why it matters to them personally. And they're assertive. You know, many people think you hear the word challenger, they hear that they're assertive, and they assume, you know, we're talking about used car salesman tactics, and that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a professional level of, of assertiveness. It's not about being aggressive or obnoxious, it's the, but it's also not about being a pushover and being passive. It's about holding your ground. If you're bringing a new idea to the customer and they start to push back, you know, do you, do you cave instantly or do you hold your ground a little bit and, and maintain that tension and use that tension to your advantage? And actually, that's the real difference. If you compare the extreme, the challenger against the relationship builder, you know, the relationship builder is likable, they're generous with their time, they get along with people. And if you were to sum this up, what you'd say is the relationship builders, those two extremes, the one who comes in first in the high performance, the challenger, the one who, the one who comes in last, the relationship builder, is that while the relationship builder's posture is about diffusing tension, whenever tension crops up in the sales process, in the sales conversation, make it go away. Acquiesce to whatever the customer wants. Just agree with what they want. Be reactive. Be generous. Be acquiescent. If you do that, the customer will buy from you. They'll keep buying from you. They'll be loyal to you. The challenger knows that the relationship is important, but their, their posture is more about creating tension, to actually build what we call constructive tension. Because they know that when you're selling something, especially if you're selling something big and disruptive and complex, you've got to get the customer to think differently. You've got to push their thinking. You've got to use tension to your advantage. And they know that. And that's why it's such a successful sales approach, especially in complex sales. Now, one of the side points I'd make here, uh, Jim, is that the, the relationship, and this goes back to Tom Searcy's point that he made on your show, the relationship builder, or the, or the challenger, I should say, actually statistically minors in relationship building. And what I mean by that is they're the second best relationship builders of all five profiles, but it's not their primary posture. They use the relationship, in other words, to get in the door with the customer. They know they've got to be liked. If the customer doesn't like you, you've got bigger problems. But that's table stakes in today's world. They know that that's not enough. And the currency of the relationship has changed. So all well and good to be liked, but you've got to get in there then and push their thinking. And ultimately, what you're doing is forging a better relationship than even your relationship builder, because it's a relationship founded on business value, on new ideas, which we know is the number one thing customers are looking for today. In fact, 53% of business customer loyalty we found in our research is a function.
function of the ability of the salesperson to bring new ideas to the table, to deliver those new insights, to teach the customer something they didn't know before. If you can do that, now you're really you're selling in a very powerful way. You're selling what customers are looking to buy right now, and that's the big difference uh, vis-a-vis the relationship builder. They use the relationship as a means to an end, not just an end unto itself. Matt, in every movement or in every trend, there appears to be a triggering event that brings this to everybody's attention. And in my particular case, because of the work we do at Performance Group, which is recruiting salespeople Mm -hmm. across different industries all across the United States, I noticed what you're talking about during what's now called the Great Recession. Mm -hmm. To me, that was a triggering event where I saw the shift came to light to me And we've tried to make adjustments with our clients to say, hey, there's a new type of salesperson out there that you're asking for, but you don't quite understand. So is the challenger salesperson only going to excel during the period we're in right now, or is the challenger really the trend that's heading into the future? Great question. Uh, you know, when we started this research, Jim, we it was started with that very question, which is in this dramatically, you know, tough time that we were all selling into. And I think most people that we work with would would agree with the statement that you know, 2007, 2008, 2009 were some of the toughest years that we've ever seen in professional selling. It was you know, some industries started to go off a cliff a little bit early, but everyone went off a cliff. Come by 2009, everyone was it was a disaster, as you know, across industries and very few of us doing well. And it was into that environment that our clients, we work with about 700 heads of sales around the world, they came back to us and said, look, we are fighting for our survival out here. And what we need your help doing is trying to answer a mystery. What What is the reason that in this horrible sales environment, a sales environment that none of my salespeople have ever seen before, I've never even seen before as a head of sales, why is it that while all of my guys are missing quota dramatically, that some of them, a few of them, are still delivering the number? In fact, some of them are even exceeding their performance in this really tough environment. And so it was actually, that was the starter question, Jim, was, you know, help us figure this out. And it was a, it was a poignant time because the, the answer to that question held the riddle of how to get, how do we get out of this downturn? How do we continue to make money? How do I keep my job as a head of sales? How do I keep my company in business? And so it was a really urgent question. So we went into it and we looked at this and we found, oh, there are these challengers. But here's the thing. A lot of the, a lot of the questions we got went right to what you brought up, which is, is this the recipe for selling success? in an economically tough time. Is it true that when things get better, well, customers will start to value and prefer the relationship builder approach, and you'll see the performance of the relationship builder start to creep up. And, you know, really, that's been the biggest gut punch, I think, for for folks out there about this research. Not so much that the challenger wins, it's that the relationship builder loses, because it's really the posture we've been telling salespeople to pursue and to use with the customer for years and years and years. And there isn't B2B salesperson out there who doesn't at some level believe that selling is about relationships. And, and that's that's what we've been telling salespeople to do for years. And so it's a big gut punch for heads of sales to see they're placing their biggest bet on the horse least likely to win the race and that there's this different approach, the challenger approach, that's actually different in many key respects. But one of the things we, as I said before, we got asked is, you know, is this a temporary thing? Is it a product of the downturn? And we cut the data. We looked at complexity. We didn't, we haven't studied this. Obviously, we didn't have a time machine, so we couldn't go back and study this back 
back when, you know, pre-recession, when things were great, to see how things played out. But our hypothesis, our strong hypothesis backed by data is that this is an approach that's here to stay. So when you cut the data and you look at simple sales versus complex sales, and you agree that every company we work with, and I think most of your the companies listening to the show today, most of the executives listening to the show, they would say, we are on a journey to get out of the transactional, to get out of the product sale and into the solution sale. So we're trying to, and this is a journey companies have been on for, you know, 20, 30 years now, and it's one that's really accelerating for B2B suppliers because they know that products are easy to, to buy and replace for the customer. A solution is stickier. It's harder to dislodge. It really embeds you in the customer's workflow and in their organization. It's better margins for us. They're harder, but they're much harder to sell. We know this, of course. They're more expensive. They're more complex. Touches more parts of the customer's business. It's a tougher sale, but companies are on that journey. And here's the thing is when we look at the high performers in a transactional sales environment, what we find is challengers actually don't win. It's hard workers who win, and it kind of makes sense, right? Because if you think about a transactional product sale, it's about volume. It's about it's, sales is a machine in that world. It's a very activity-based. We can follow a process. All you need is a bunch of folks who get in early, stay late, follow a script, and bang out as many calls as humanly possible because at some level it's volume in and business out. And it's, we run sales like a factory in that world. And what we argue is if that's your business, the challenger might actually be too much club for you. Hire a bunch of hard workers. It's a pretty good model. But if you're on a journey to go from simple sales to complex sales, well, in complex sales, hard workers and also relationship builders kind of disappear off the map entirely, and challengers, as I said, dominate, 54% of high performers. And if you if you believe that we are all on this journey from getting out of the transactional, the easy-to-replace product sale, into the stickier, the more profitable, the more embedded solution sale, if you're on that journey, you've got to build the challenger sales force, because a solution sale, complex sale, is a sale of disruption. It's about telling the customer, stop doing it this way and start doing it a different way. You know, stop doing this yourself, start outsourcing it to us. Stop buying from these guys in a product-centric way, start buying from us in a solution-centric way. And and this is a this is a disruptive thing for the customer, but you know, it change the customer knows is hard. And so if your posture is one of, you know, a relationship builder, whatever you need, I got you covered, and you show up with a disruptive idea, what the customer wants you to do is take your disruptive idea, put it back in your bag, and don't let the door hit you on the way out, because that sounds tough. It sounds like a big change. Challengers at some level are not selling solutions. They're selling behavior change. They're trying to get the customer to think about their business in a different way. That's why they're so successful when they're selling these big, complex, disruptive solutions. And so when you look at that, the question is, if we're moving from product selling to solution selling, to selling more complex deals to our customers, what's the sales person we need, and the answer is a challenger, and that's irrespective of the down economy, not because of it, if that makes sense. Yes, it does, Matt. And when we come back, we'll have you define for the audience what you mean by a complex sale. We're talking to Matt Dixon. He's a co-author of the book, The Challenger Sale, Taking Control of the Customer Conversation. More resources for growing yourself and your company are available on our website, biztalkradioshow.com. Matt, when we left off, you were talking about the selling environment that a challenger salesperson could excel in, and you brought up the term complex sale. So for our audience, define what a complex sale is to you. 
Great question. We, you know, there's uh, two ways to answer that. One is just sort of from a methodological perspective. We actually divided companies uh, by looking at a number of key metrics, like number of accounts that salespeople or account managers manage. So you tend to see more complex deals associated with salespeople who have a small number of accounts, obviously, because each one is bigger, more complex, more sophisticated to manage. Salespeople have lots of accounts. Well, it's typically that the sales process is short cycle. It's it's a lower cost. It's more of a mechanistic, if you will. We also look at sales cycle time, deal size, et cetera. And so we kind of created an index score for what was complex and what was transactional that we could do our analysis on. But, you know, we have many people come and say, well, we're not IBM or we're not, you know, the big, huge companies selling these massive multi-million dollar deals to our customers and that take, you know, a year, maybe two, three, four years to sell to a customer. So maybe the challenger doesn't apply for to us. Maybe it's more that we're in the transactional state. And what we'd say is two things. First of all, that may actually be true, but before you make the sort of assumption that you are in a transactional sales environment, ask yourself the following things. First is, are you trying to get out of that transactional product sale. And many companies will tell you that while things are transactional right now, we, we find ourselves it's kind of a race to the bottom, right? And it's we're, we're getting our, we have ankle biters out there, we're doing battle in the trenches, and it's whoever can get, get in first with the customer and outsell the customer, and at the end of the day offer the lowest price is the one who wins. That's not where we want to be. We want to be in the higher margin, more profitable, bigger deal space, and we're trying to move the sales force into that, that area. Now, it may be that most of your salespeople are in the transactional part of the business, and there's maybe a little Delta Force or kind of SWAT team that's selling the bigger deals. But as you think about your business, is more of it going to look like the complex deal or the transactional deal over time? So you may say, well, hard worker might be the right answer right now, but challenger is the way of the future for us. So as you think about who you're bringing in, and I think, Jim, to your point, when you think about this from a recruiting perspective, do you want to hire people who are kind of one-trick ponies? They're great at hard worker, but they can't really, don't have the chops to really be a challenger. Or do you want to hire people who have challenger potential who can actually play the role of the challenger as the business evolves. I think the second thing you have to ask is, you might think what you're selling is transactional, but how disruptive is it for the customer? There's a company I work with where I presented the challenger research to them, and they sell $5,000 software subscription to nonprofits and corporate foundations. And right away, these guys said, well, we're not, that's not a complex deal, because it's, you know, I associate complexity with price tag, and $5,000 is pretty cheap. We sell, like, you know, dozens of these things a day. It's a pretty fast sales cycle. It's like a, a couple-day-long sales cycle. But when we ask the question, how disruptive is the idea that you're selling? How, how much of a behavior change is it for your customers? And what they came back and realized was they are the only people in the space selling this kind of software to do something for their customer that customers have historically used Excel to do or, or the Rolodex to do. And to use, to think about using a cloud-based software subscription to actually do this core piece of their workflow is completely new for them. And so they have to sell them on changing the behavior, even if the thing only costs 5000 bucks and it only takes a week or two weeks to sell it, the, there is disruption inherent in that. You've got to get the customer to stop doing it one way and start doing it a different way. And for them, what they realize is not only that is it, it's cheap, but it's actually disruptive for the customer. But we're also trying to get out of the $5,000 sales and into the more $50,000 sales by signing multi-year contracts that have us come in and consult to their business and have different layers of service and support around it. And while that's a very small part of their business right now, they anticipate that being the big growth engine for the firm down the road because they know they can't win just racing to the bottom on price. Matt, you're with a business leader today. The one piece of advice you're giving them is what? Uh, great, uh, great question. You know, I've, I've been asked this question to him before, and I, you'd think I'd have a better answer by now. <laughs> I think I think the one thing I would say is let's fight the urge from fight the urge to 
do what the customer wants and 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 let's think about doing what the, we think the customer needs. And I think that's at the heart of coming in and teaching them new things. Even if we think they've they've got it wrong, it's so easy to fall into that mode of of just doing what the customer says they uh, they want and trying to compete on on their prescribed you know criteria, their RFP, the way they're thinking about things. If you know there's a better way, if you see your most progressive customers using your solutions in a different way, if you see this customer getting it wrong, you got you owe it to the customer, and frankly, you owe it to yourself, and you'll be better off for showing the customer they're doing it wrong, for telling them why they're doing it wrong, and reframing the way they think about things. It creates tension, but it creates constructive tension, ultimately delivers a better relationship than simply doing what they say they want. All right, Matt, if people want to learn more about what you're talking about, where do they go? couple things. Obviously, get the book. There's a lot more content in there in the book that you can learn about uh, this notion of challenger, etc. And, of course, go to the book website, which is www.thechallengersale.com. Find a lot of bonus materials there, tools, templates, some videos with ourselves, and also Professor Neil Rackham, who wrote the forward to our book, and who, of course, wrote Spin Selling, talking about challenger and what it means in today's sales environment. Matt, it's been a pleasure having you on the program. Take care. Have a great weekend. This or other BizTalk podcasts may be downloaded by visiting our website, biztalkradioshow.com, where you can subscribe to BizTalk through iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at BizTalk1040 and like us on Facebook. If you want to learn the strategies finding and getting performance out of A-player salespeople, contact Performance Group by calling 800-950-9509 or visit us on the web at pmgllc.net. This has been your host, Jim Lovato.